Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Our scripture today can be found in Mark 16. 1 to 8, and you can find it on page 1022 in your Bibles. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. They asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. But when I hear Mark's account of the resurrection, I am struck immediately by the brevity of his report. Some Bibles, and yours may have this if you have one, but some Bibles have an italicized section covering verses 9 through 20. But there is agreement amongst most of the smart people who study these things that Mark's gospel really ends with the passage Colleen just read. And then sometime many years later, someone or some group that didn't like the abruptness of Mark's ending or didn't like the unfinished feel of it, went and added the longer ending to tidy the whole thing up. But I personally love Mark's untidy, to-the-point, open-ended account of the resurrection of Jesus. Mark is the Cliff Notes gospel. He gets right to the point. He doesn't waste any words. I think my youngest daughter is a descendant of Mark, the gospel writer. Hi, Easy. How's it going? Fine. How are you? School going okay? How's soccer going? Good. Oh, by the way, I won the Powerball yesterday. Tomorrow I'm receiving a check for $212 million. ABC News will be at our house covering it all. And right after that, Mom and I are going to go to Hawaii for a month. Cool. (laughs) This is Mark's style. Every word written matters, and every word not written matters. Now, I'm fairly sure there are a myriad of reasons why we ended up in this room this morning. Maybe it was an April Fool's joke. Hey, you want to go to brunch? Sure, April Fool's, we're sitting at church. (laughs) Maybe we were cajoled to be here, coerced in some way. Mom said she'd love it if we were here, Dad ordered us to be here. Grandma said it would make her year if we were here, and then she said I may not have many years left, so here we are. And I am sure 
some of us are here because to one degree or another, we feel like there may just be something to this resurrection thing. So let me level the field before we get going. It doesn't make any difference how or why we ended up here. We are going to spend a few minutes considering this crazy thing called the resurrection. And at the risk of sounding over the top, the resurrection is the most significant event in the history of the cosmos. And I say this fully aware that there are all sorts of opinions and perspectives in this room right now about the resurrection and about this guy, Jesus, and about the whole Christian story. But we have only a few minutes, so I don't think we are going to resolve too many of the conundrums that have baffled the human race since it began. So I want to invite us in the spirit of our Lenten series and in the spirit of what Colleen just said, I want to invite us to open our hands just a bit and release our questions, release our defensiveness, release our resistance for just a few minutes on this Resurrection Sunday and do our best to consider the resurrection. Not so much from the standpoint of whether it happened or not, crucial as that obviously is, but from the perspective of how the resurrection invites us into a new, unfamiliar, maybe even unsettling adventure. On Sunday morning after Jesus' Friday death, three women went to the tomb to prepare his body. This was essentially an embalming task, among other things, and it had to be done. And on the way to Jesus' tomb, these three women discussed the obvious challenge they were about to face. There was a one to two ton stone covering the entrance to the tomb, and they needed help to move it. But when they arrived, the stone had already been rolled away. They entered the tomb and they saw what Mark calls a young man dressed in a white robe, which means a strange dude was chilling on the slab inside the tomb. He was actually an angel, but Mark prefers the more earthy description, young man. And as we might expect, the women freaked out about this whole thing. And then the guy spoke to them. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And Mark ends his brief report with verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And today I want us to consider and to ponder and wrestle for a few minutes with the resurrection of Jesus as four invitations to us today living 2,000 years later. And the first invitation is the invitation to imagine the possibility of reconciliation. In his report, Mark includes a minor detail with major implications. The young guy says to the women, see the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. 
Peter always had good intentions, but he frequently failed to deliver on them. He is the guy who vowed to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what, but when the crucial moment came, he blew it. He failed. He lost his nerve and he left his friend to suffer and to die alone. And that minor detail, Mark includes, those two seemingly innocuous words, and Peter, have echoed for 2,000 years. Because they speak so clearly and so deeply to the common human experience of blowing it. Of failing in the crucial moment. Those two words pierce the armor of guilt and shame that cover the soul of the person who has broken trust or failed or somehow let a loved one down. And I resonate with Peter. And with his ability to talk a good game and make brash predictions about what he will and will not do, but his words rarely match his actions, Peter didn't walk nearly as well as he talked. And I resonate with this guy. I feel a brotherly connection with Peter because he dropped the ball. He failed. And I imagine after this recent incident with Jesus, he felt like a complete failure. The Bible implies that from the minute Peter betrayed Jesus, his soul flooded with guilt and shame, and he began drowning in it. Have you ever experienced something like this in an important relationship? Peter knew the crushing weight of guilt and the suffocating power of shame. Have you ever experienced the encircling darkness brought on by a severe relational failure? I don't have to work too hard to imagine Peter off on his own somewhere, unable to quiet the condemnation committee in his head. The disappointed voices, the folded arms, the disgusted looks, the pursed lips, the shaking heads, the wagging fingers. I imagine when these women found Peter and told him, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead and we're supposed to meet him in Galilee, that Peter never lifted his eyes from their blank stare at the ground. He took another swig of his scotch and he mumbled, well, not me. But the hope and the longing that must have stirred when those women declared, no, he specifically said to make sure you come too. Wait a minute. Maybe there is a possibility this fracture can be healed. This relationship can be restored. Maybe my blowing it is not the final word. Maybe this brokenness does not have to be permanent. See, the resurrection invites us to imagine the possibility of reconciliation with God with ourselves, and with other people. Jesus' primary vocation was reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, Shed on the cross. Jesus' primary vocation was reconciliation, bringing together those who are apart 
And again, the point is not to try to understand or make sense of what all this means in meticulous detail. The point is to open the hands and simply imagine the possibility of reconciliation, the possibility of relationship restored and healed, the possibility of experiencing peace with God, peace with self, and peace with other people. Occasionally, for a host of reasons, some people start to sense there is something missing in their lives. It's an elusive sensation, and they can't adequately describe it, and they don't feel this all the time. It comes and goes. It comes sometimes when they attend a funeral. Sometimes it just comes at odd times. A deep wondering about life. A cautious Curiosity, we might say, about this business of God. And it is exquisitely good news to announce on this most significant day that in the resurrection of Jesus, God demonstrates his power over everything that is wrong and broken in this world. Death, disease, sin, shame, guilt, shattered relationships, and all manner of evil in the human heart and in the world. And through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God demonstrates his inexhaustible love for people. People who blow it like Peter. And though we may not know this, every single one of us is like Peter. So because of the resurrection, authentic and genuine And life-altering reconciliation with God is now possible. We can be forgiven of all of our sins and failures. We can be restored. The fracture, the alienation, the guilt, the shame can be healed. And we can experience peace with God, peace with self, and peace with others. Mark feels no need to connect every dot or to dot every I. He says what he needs to, but he doesn't say it all. And these two minor words still today have major implications. And Peter. And Mike. And you. Second invitation from the resurrection is to awaken to transcendence. When our son Sam was young, he loved the Lord of the Rings movies and books. Not loved as in appreciated. Loved as in they activated something in his tender soul. And even though he couldn't find words to describe what it was, he instinctively knew it was central to his very existence and to his ultimate longings. We watched those movies for years. Trolls. Enchanted forests. Intimidating evil. Magical rings. Giant eagles. Scary creatures, and his most favorite of all, little hobbits. And I remember like it was yesterday how he would watch these movies, and a few days later we'd be driving somewhere, and out of the complete blue, unprompted, he would preach to me. No one knows, Dad, if hobbits exist. They could exist somewhere. No one knows for sure. That they don't exist. And do you know that was one of the most brilliant statements by one of the most brilliant 
people on this planet. Now, I realize I'm a bit biased here, so forgive that. But the brilliance is not because he was my child with my last name. The brilliance is because he was a child. So transcendence was still not only a possibility, it was an absolute guarantee. There had to be more than what, we, what these eyes can see and these ears can hear and these hands can touch and this brain can explain. And no one is more awake to transcendence than a child. Now, the story is far more complicated than this, but for a long, long time, the forces and influences of our world have been working overtime to convince us that there is nothing more than what we can see and hear and touch and explain and prove and verify with scientific formulas and methods. And this is no conspiracy against us, for we have all willingly played along and fulfilled our role to get where we are today where now, today, maybe for one of the first times in history, it is easier to not believe than to believe. It is, in some sense, more acceptable to not believe than to believe, and it is increasingly more common to not believe than to believe. One author says we live in, quote, a world flattened by disenchantment. Julian Barnes opens his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, with this poignant statement. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And yet here we are, gathered on this most significant day in the history of the cosmos, at least from a Christian perspective, and we are considering a story saturated with transcendence, filled with, with divine enchantment. And I want to keep encouraging us to keep our hands open and let the conundrums about the spiritual and the religious and the church and how screwed up it all is just fall to the ground for just a few more seconds. The women ask, who will roll this two-ton stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had already been moved. As they entered the tomb, a young man in a white robe was chilling on the slab, and he spoke to them and said, He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The story pulsates with divine transcendence. If we allow it to, the resurrection can awaken us to transcendence, by which we mean something bigger and beyond the small enclosures of our everyday lives and chores, something grander and more glorious and powerful than what our eyes and ears and hands can, and brains can touch and grasp, grasp, something beyond proven formulas and tested theories. And I believe somewhere in each one of us, perhaps buried deep under piles of pain and ambition and insecurity and education, that child who craves transcendence still exists. That child who loves little hobbits still exists. I believe, or at least I wonder, if intuitively, subconsciously, at a visceral gut level, embedded within us as part of our core makeup, we know there is a desire for something 
grand, something big, something mysterious, something beyond our comprehensive powers, something impossible to codify, simplify, or verify with microscopes or telescopes or experiments. That's my favorite sound in the world right there, by the way. Right in the middle, I'm going, and the kid goes, enough of this knucklehead. The NCAA basketball tournament wraps up tomorrow night. But a few weeks ago, number one ranked Virginia lost 74-54 to to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. It sounds like a Meryl Streep movie. Now, if we're not into college basketball... Just imagine if the Folsom High School football team beat the San Francisco 49ers. Actually, it's a bad example because that would probably happen. Well, I love that. But you get the point, right? This was the first time a number 16 seed had beaten a number one seed since the tournament expanded to 64 teams all the way back in 1985. So that is 33 years and some 136 games where a 16-seeded team lost to a one-seeded team. And then finally, a few weeks ago, the unexpected happened. This no-name team from Baltimore beat what everyone thought was the best team in the nation. And everyone was and still is thrilled. I'm sure for many reasons. But maybe one reason is because something in us wants a world where the unexpected happens. Something in us awakens when the unexpected happens. Because something in us was made for the unexpected. We long for it. We crave it. Not because we are wild-eyed dreamers who have abandoned logic and reason and facts, but because human beings are made for more than logic and reason and facts. We hunger for God. But this hunger often lies dormant under piles of everyday life stuff until something like the resurrection awakens it. See, you have within you a hunger for something bigger. We long to be, I'll use Mark's word, alarmed by what we cannot explain. We tremble at a violent storm or at a crashing wave, but something in us feels more complete having trembled. Like we feel more human when we tremble. So there is just too much happening in the resurrection to politely salute it and head to brunch or tip our hat and go on with life as usual. The divine saturates the resurrection and it bears a closer look. No one knows, Dad, if hobbits exist. They could exist somewhere. No one knows for sure that they don't exist. Third invitation from the resurrection is to tremble into the process. Mark's account of the resurrection stops on a dime. It just ends abruptly. 
There are signs indicating something magnificent has happened. The stone is moved. The tomb is open. The tomb is empty. There's a strange dude who talks. Jesus' body is gone. And the rendezvous is in Galilee. But when Mark closes the lid on his laptop, no one has yet seen Jesus. No one has heard from him. The women are trembling in fear. There isn't a single ounce of joy. They haven't said a word to anyone because they're scared to death. And Peter is sipping his scotch, drowning in despair. And Mark's version ends. Now it just seems really obvious that Mark is not motivated to resolve all the tensions, settle all the uncertainties, answer all the questions, connect every dot or dot every I. Let me say it this way. There's a strange but very real process, and it's unfolding. And the resurrection invites us to tremble into the process. That is, every question will not be answered. Every conundrum will not be resolved. We understand bits and pieces, but large chunks still confuse us. We don't know everything, and we don't need to know everything. So we step into it with fear and delicious trembling, nervous but excited too, and we start heading to Galilee. We move just a little, and we see what happens. One of the most frustrating things in this world is to get a new printer, take it out of the box, pull those white styrofoam things on the sides out, watch little bits of styrofoam fly all over the room, hook up the printer, and then find out it doesn't work. And then you have to do the impossible, try and get everything back in the box, including those white styrofoam things on the side. And yet the stuff never fits back into the box. So it all gets crammed in and cords are sticking out. Two of the styrofoam things end up in the garbage and tape just gets wrapped around the whole remaining bulges and back the whole mess goes to Best Buy. Maybe this is my narrative, but that's how I do it. (laughs) Some of us like neat and tidy boxes where everything fits. But I just want to say that is not God's way. And it is certainly not Mark's motivation in this resurrection story. There is no neat and tidy box that fits every bit of this magnificent story. And you know what? Life rarely works this way anyhow. Where everything makes sense. Every question is answered. Every tension is resolved. Life rarely works like an on-off switch. There's all sorts of mysterious and mushy middle to navigate. Unbelief rarely becomes belief with a finger snap. We rarely go from practically ignoring God to following God overnight. It is a process. A long journey by inches. So we tremble into the process. We begin with what we know and we act on what we know. Go to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you, where in Galilee? What's the address? Uh, Hey, Siri, where is Jesus in Galilee? (laughs) Keep the hands open and tremble into the process. Embrace the mystery and give it time. See, with the whole God thing, sometimes we want it all snugly to fit in the box. Or we don't want any of it. 
It is this artificial on-off thing, and it isn't real life. All the questions won't be resolved first, or maybe ever. Yeah, but if God is so good, why is there all this suffering? Do miracles happen? Why does cancer win so often? Why does God seem to advocate violence in the Bible? Is Jesus for real? Is the resurrection true? Is the Bible true? How can I know? All good questions, but here's the thing. Go to Galilee, and there you'll see him. Take a step. Make a move. Tremble into the process with open hands. Begin. Move just a little. If God is real and if Jesus is actually resurrected and alive, then somehow he will show up and you will see. And you will know what you need to know. And the process will continue. So keep trembling and start moving. And fourth and last invitation from the resurrection is an invitation to stir with hope. When the stone moved and Jesus left the tomb, the cosmos changed forever. The power of sin and darkness and evil was crushed. The number one seed known as suffering and violence and pain and death and evil was defeated. And a whole new cosmos was born. Now these women didn't get any of this. And we don't get very much of it. But when they saw the place where Jesus had been laid and he wasn't there, can you imagine what lit off in them? The fear and the uncertainty and the hope must have stirred ever so slightly and ever so cautiously. Maybe just a flicker of hope, a faint glimmer. The resurrection confirms Jesus as king over all. Not even death can defeat him. So he is in charge. He's working things out in his way and in his time. The cosmos, the world, humanity, you, me, all of it, and all of us are in his sight and under his care. And yes, questions abound. Conundrums paralyze But the resurrection invites us to stir with hope ever so slightly and cautiously and even skeptically. Because of the resurrection, we can face the future stirring with hope. Because whatever is looming out there in the foggy future is not greater than God or more powerful than his power. The future is uncertain. The present is is uncertain. Questions abound, conundrums paralyze, problems persist, but Jesus is risen from the dead and all will be well. And now there is real hope, however faint it may stir. Jesus is king. And even when the king was hanging on a cross and dying, he was still king. His plan and process was still unfolding. Even when it seemed like chaos and disorder ruled the day, Jesus was still king. And even when death seemed to have silenced his voice and stopped his plan, the stone moved and Jesus walked out because Jesus is king. And someday, the fog will finally lift for good. And the power and the goodness and the grace and the joy of this 
new world, this new resurrection world will cascade down and in and through every nook and cranny and corner of this universe. And on that day, all things will finally and fully and perfectly be well. So the hope we want to have today, the hope we'd like to have, the flicker or glimmer of hope we do have on that future beautiful day will erupt in an inferno of hope beyond our imagination. And we will experience the goodness and the fullness of God in ways far beyond the limits of human language. So we celebrate today. Because he is risen, he is risen indeed, and he invites us further up and further in, one little cautious and skeptical step at a time. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, on this day we simply shout that we are glad We shout that the tomb is empty. We declare in the face of whatever, the tomb is empty. Death has been conquered. All manner of evil has been put in its place. A new world has come to life. And one day it will be fully here. And so we celebrate with an eye toward the future when the fog lifts and all is well. We celebrate you today in Jesus' name.